Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I'm Lisa Meese, and today I'm talking to Keith DeCandido. Did I say that right? You did. Congratulations, you you passed the first test. Yay! <laughs> Excellent. No, everybody everybody gets it wrong. It's 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 become a running gag. My my favorite was one convention I was at, and I honestly don't remember which one it is now. But um, I was one of the the primary guests, and the the person who was emceeing the opening ceremony was going around to every one of the guests he was introducing and making sure how to pronounce the names right. I told him it's DeCandido. He said DeCandido. Good. I was going to say DeCandido. DeCandido. And I saw him later saying DeCandido. DeCandido. He gets up on stage and here is Keith R.A. DeCandido. And I cried. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have spent the better part of 53 years correcting that mispronunciation of the name. I expect to spend the next 53 years doing the same. But, uh, uh, but you got it right. Been, so well done. I hope you will spend 53 more years correcting that because, you yes. know, having you around is good. I, I would I, I approve of this plan. Yes. Excellent. Yes. So. And by um, the time I'm 106, I probably won't give a damn. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who knows if we'll even be using names? Then perhaps it will just be barcodes. <laughs> so your Wikipedia page says you were a Star Trek fan even before birth. How does that work exactly? Uh, the way that works is my parents were both uh, dedicated viewers of the original Star Trek when it aired from 1966 to 69. Um, and that included the period during which my mother was pregnant with me, which uh, happened in the nine months leading up to April of 1969. Um, so they were watching the, the the end of the third season of the show uh, while I was in the womb. So so I joked that I would have been a Star Trek. You know, uh, there was only, only one episode of Star Trek actually aired in my lifetime. Um, and that was only because of, a, of uh, because Dwight Eisenhower died. Um, the original airing of Turnabout Intruder uh, was supposed to be in, I want to say, March. Um, but it was it was preempted because of coverage of uh, Eisenhower's funeral. So its first airing wasn't until June of 69. And it was Turnabout Intruder, which was terrible. So the fact that it was postponed is really not a, a big deal. But, um, uh, but that's the only episode that actually... But when I was growing up... Um, uh, the one of the local uh, independent stations here in New York, Channel 11, which which has since become a CW affiliate, but uh, at the time it was um, uh, it was airing reruns of Star Trek every weeknight at six o'clock, and I, that's how that was my routine growing up. We would we would sit down at six o'clock, watch Star Trek, and then we'd eat dinner. <laughs> Not this the worst was, of routines, yeah. Yes, yeah, so 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 I, I I also in addition to uh, having it imprinted on me in vitro as it were uh i also grew up watching star trek and have been a have been a fan since birth as well as before birth so. in vivo i think if it were or in it... vitro you would be in a test tube and your mom wasn't oh right, right you're right yes in... i mean sorry. just checking because she could be sorry i'm not i i yeah and we're not anti-borg i'm a writer i'm a, not a biologist so. <laughs> and i'm smart ass not a podcast podcast oh, well i'm also a smart ass so uh um Okay, so you are maybe best known for writing media tie-in fiction. How many different worlds have you written, series you've written fiction in? Uh, I have, at, as of now, written in 39 different universes that I did not create. Um, nice. Most of those are licensed universes tying into games or TV shows or movies or comic books. Um, some of them are also things that were 
uh, worlds that were created by authors that they then opened it up to other people to work in, like um, uh, Mac Boland's Executioner novels that became a tie-in franchise where it started out as, as all being written by Boland before he, he died. Um, and uh, some of them are shared worlds that were created by other authors. Um, and uh, uh, in one case, I, had, I, I finished a book that another author started. Um, I've written comic book adaptation. I wrote a comic book adaptation of somebody else's novel um, and stuff like that. I am going to be adding two more to it. I can't say what they are yet because they haven't been formally announced. Um, although by the time this podcast airs, they might be, but, um, uh, but I don't, I don't want to step on any toes. And one, and in one case in particular, I haven't actually signed a contract yet. So I definitely don't want to mention <laughs> that one. Um, but it's one I haven't written before and one I'm looking forward to. And the other one is a, is a, uh, a silly little thing that, that should be a lot of fun to do. That one I can talk about. Fantastic Books is going to be doing uh, an Eye of Argon anthology. Ooh. Where our story is taking place in the world of, of the, the famously terrible work of, of fantasy fiction that people do dramatic readings of at conventions. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to write some uh, intentionally terrible fiction for it. Correct. That's that's the idea. We, are, we, are, we, are, we have been instructed by our editor, Michael Ventrella, not to proofread our stories or to correct typos. Um, that's <laughs> part of the point. Um, it, it will be true to the spirit of the Eye of Argon. Um, so, uh, so that should be fun. My, my story is going to be the, 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 as the heretofore untold tale of the rat that Grigner kills when he's in his cell. So, <laughs> well, it feels like that rat deserves to have his tail told. So Absolutely. I'm glad you were on that for them. Yeah. So how did you get started writing tie-in fiction? Um, very bass backwards um, uh, in from 1992 until 1998 I worked for the late Byron Price who was a book packager I was the editor who handled his science fiction fantasy and horror stuff and uh, when I first started there he got the license to do uh, books based on Marvel superheroes that was actually a very big project that was that that pretty much consumed my life uh, throughout most of the 90s um, we did about more than 50 uh, novels and short story anthologies featuring Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, et cetera. My first fiction sale actually came about through that because we were putting together a Spider-Man anthology. We let off with a, a Spider-Man anthology and a Spider-Man uh, novel, the first book in a novel trilogy by Diane Duane. The anthology, we had stories featuring several of Spider-Man's major villains, but we did not have a Venom story. And this was in 1994 when Venom was at the absolute height of his popularity. You couldn't do a Spider-Man uh, anthology without having Venom in it. Uh, in fact, our first novel featured Venom. It was called The Venom Factor. So this wasn't for lack of trying. For those of you who don't know, the, the process when you're writing a media tie-in work is you have to come up with the story first, just the basic plot outline, whether it's a short story or a novel, doesn't matter. And that has to be approved by the people who own it. In this case, there was there were people at Marvel who had to approve the stories before we could go ahead and write them. And we sent them six different Venom pitches by six different authors, which were all rejected. And we're, we're past the 11th hour. And uh, for the for the first three projects, I was I was the associate editor to a senior editor, John Betancourt. Uh, after the first two books, he left the company and I took over uh, as full editor. But um, he and I basically went to to Marvel and said, what do you want to see in a Venom story? They gave us a sentence. <laughs> Based on that sentence, John and I wrote the story because we didn't have time to assign it to anybody else. We did this in like three days. I wrote a draft, gave it to John. He tore it apart, rewrote it from the ground up, gave it back to me. I tore it apart, rewrote it from the ground up, gave it back to him. And so my first short story is a collaboration with John Gregory Betancourt called An Evening in the Bronx with Venom. <laughs> 
looking back on that story almost 30 years later, I know there are parts of that story that John wrote. Like there's a sequence from the point of view of one of the cops in the story it was all John's. There are sequences that I know that I wrote, like the fight scenes. John is terrible at fights. So I, I did all I did all that. The big the big fight at the end with between Spider-Man and Venom was all me. There are parts of that story I haven't the first clue who wrote. <laughs> Like maybe John did, uh, maybe, I don't know. But that got it started. I did some other Marvel stories in the Marvel anthologies that we that we did. Somebody else in the company would edit them, obviously. And that being an editor also led me to opportunities to pitch other things. One of the authors who uh, wrote stories for one of our X-Men anthologies and also for one of our original anthologies that we published, uh, Andy Lane, was editing a Doctor Who anthology. And I've been a Doctor Who fan since I was eight. I asked, oh, can I pitch to that, please? Can I, can I, please, please? Ha ha, can I, can I, ha ha. And uh, he said, sure, send me something. I sent him a pitch. He liked it. His co-editor liked it. And so in 1996, I gained the rather irrelevant distinction of being the first native-born American citizen to write official Doctor Who fiction. Adult, linear adult Doctor Who fiction. I have to qualify it that much because another American wrote a choose your own adventure book and John Peel is a naturalized American citizen. So not counting those two, I was the first one. I was the first American to write. If you cut the categories just right, then yes. me. Yes. <laughs> that, that anthology also had the first Doctor Who story ever written by Stephen Moffat. Actually. Oh, cool. Um, it was a song, a, a brilliant story called Continuity Errors, which he actually used as the basis for one of the Christmas specials he later did with Matt Smith. Uh, the Christmas Carol was was a very similar type story. You know, I read that. I remember reading that story and thinking, wow, this guy really does good Doctor Who. When I found out he was going to be involved with the new show, I was thrilled. And it just it snowballed from there. I got I got uh, other opportunities to write. My first novel was actually a Spider-Man novel, which Byron basically came to me and said, we can't afford to give you a promotion, but I can give you a novel contract. Okay. So I was like, all right. So uh, I wrote a Spider-Man novel called Venom's Wrath, which I wrote with uh, Jose Nieto. And that led to other opportunities. And it just sort of, like I said, it snowballed from there. Um, I don't do as much media tie-ins now as I as I used to. I've been able to focus more on some original stuff and other projects, but they're still, you know, I'm still doing it. I just recently wrote a Resident Evil comic book, which should be coming out from Tokyo Pop soon, sometime this year. We're still waiting that we're still waiting for uh, approval on everything from uh, from Capcom. It's a prelude to the Infinite Darkness animated series that's on Netflix right now. And I just wrote a Zorro short story for an anthology that'll be out this summer. Um, and then there's the other two, the, the Grigner thing, and there's another one, another uh, media tie-in one, which, is also be, which will also be for an anthology for a property that I've always wanted to write. So I'm really looking forward to that. Fun. So aside from Star Trek, because, yes. you know, we can't skew the competition unfairly. So <laughs> what, is your, what is your second favorite fictional, maybe your third favorite, because I'm guessing yours is first and then Star Trek. So what's, what's your next favorite fictional universe to write in? If, you, if we're talking tie-ins, like not, not ones yeah. I created, right. um, I would have to say Farscape for several reasons. Uh, one is because I just, I love the show. Uh, it, was, it was one of my favorite shows while it was on the air. I absolutely adored it. And then I got the opportunity to write in that universe, first uh, a novel, House of Cards, which came out in 2001 while the show was still on the air. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a couple short stories for the official magazine and for the role-playing game. And then in 2008, Boom Studios uh, got the rights to do a comic book. And I got to work with Rock Neil Bannon, the creator of the show. Uh, and he and I wrote for uh, three years, we did comic books that continued Farscape forward after the Peacekeeper Wars. Um, it's my signed copies in the other room. I, yes. I remember. <laughs> um, and that was so much fun to do. Besides the fact that writing in that universe was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Getting to work with the creator of the show and getting to tell stories that move. I've, I've done that in other universes before, particularly in Star Trek. 
but it's always a thrill to be able to, rather than doing gap filling stories, which is mm-hmm. what most media times have to do by their nature, being able to continue the story forward in a meaningful manner is great. The idea was at, at the time in 2008, there was supposed to be uh, a series of, of webisodes that were going to uh, be sequels to Farscape. That unfortunately was planned right before the big economic crash in 2008, and they were never able to get the financing together for that. And there was, you know, there was talk about there, there was talk about doing a, a motion picture, but that was like 10 years ago now. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, at this point, I don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, it's been so long. Yeah. Farscape was kind of my first fandom. I, when they canceled it, I was very, very angry and yeah. got involved in that of say Farscape thing just a tiny little bit. Right. But it ah. might have been my gateway to where I am today. Since <laughs> <laughs> it's just so much fun. My, OK, one of my favorite one of uh, one of the stories I love to tell about, about why this was fun to work in. So one of the things I always loved about Farscape was this is a show in which one of the characters flaming P is how the, that week's problem is solved. I <laughs> yes! love that. Yes! You know? And that that's rock me because one of the storylines we did in, in the Farscape comic book was called Strange Attractors. The plot rock me gives me involved, you know, they find a cure for it and, and, uh, in the, in the final part of the storyline and Crichton has to go and, and give the cure to the rest of the crew. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, we got it. Let's make this more interesting. So one of the side effects of the cure when you get it is that you throw up um, just because, you know, this, it, this is a nasty disease and it's a, a cure that's been thrown together and there are side effects. So, so I send, you know, my, my, my page by page breakdown to Rockney based on his plot, which mentions the fact that you have to throw up the note from Rockney is love the puke. Who doesn't love puke? <laughs> Which is my single favorite note I have ever gotten on anything I've written in my in my 30 years of uh, writing. And, there you go. <laughs> and he was the one who suggested that Moya's puke look like rainbows. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that which makes was sense. really cool. And Will Sliney did a great job making that work. So, yes. Um, so you've written in all of these universes. How is all of that experience in other people's universe shaped your own world building in your original universes um it's made me i'd say it's made me conscious of having to give each universe its own distinctive feel mm-hmm. currently i've got several different original uh things of mine the biggest is is the the precinct series which is a series of high fantasy police procedurals i've got an urban i've got two different urban fantasy series one that takes place in new york one that takes place in key west uh and those two those two i've sort of hinted that they're that they're kind of in the same universe uh, i haven't formally established that but they're they're pretty much in the same thing and then there's uh my uh cops in a city filled with superheroes universe mm-hmm. uh plus I've, I've i've got a sherlock holmes pastiche that takes place in modern new york and um i've done a couple short science fiction short stories about a young woman uh on the moon which i'd like to do more with at some point but uh and a few other things uh and one of the things i try to do is give each one its own distinctive flavor in 2003, I wrote a book based on Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, which is the Kevin Sorbo show from the, mm-hmm. from the turn of yep, the millennium. Yep. And like when I'm writing that, that show had a very particular style of nomenclature for their ships. It was a very, it was, especially as originally conceived, it was a much more science-based setup in that, you know, you couldn't travel faster than light. You couldn't even, there wasn't anything like subspace communication or anything. So distance meant that there was delays in communications. All the weapons were missile-based, stuff like that. And plus, everything had, you know, very pretentious names <laughs> for things. Um, so I tried to I tried to stick to that. 
Whereas, and the and then you have the opposite of that, which is Farscape, which was very fast and loose with that sort of thing and following the, the style of that. And it also has helped in making sure, because one of the things I, I you have to do with, with tie-in fiction, when you're, when you're writing characters who already have established voices and faces and, and styles of speaking, is you have to make sure you capture those voices. You know, if you put a sentence in Jean-Luc Picard's mouth that you can't imagine Patrick Stewart saying, you've failed in your job. Right. Um, and that that's made me, I think, bit really good at making sure all my characters have distinctive voices. That that, you know, a a phrase spoken by Torian Van Wivold in the precinct books, uh, the same sentence put in his partner Danthrys Tresillian's mouth would sound differently, because mm-hmm. she's a different person and would talk differently. So, I think that's that's probably the big. Those two are the the biggest things. That makes sense. You are writing commentary for Tor.com on a bunch of the new Star Trek content. So what's your favorite that you've seen coming out in the last, you know, a couple of years? Oof. Honestly, the, the, I'm going to sort of have an odd answer to this. Um, the, th- it, it hasn't actually, cause it hasn't formally happened yet, but it's strange new worlds just because if you had told me in 2017 or anytime before 2017, that they were going to do a captain Pike series. Mm-hmm. My first question would be why um, <laughs> we, because Honestly, the original Star Trek is the Captain Pike series. They just changed the names. And, and in one case, the gender. Um, but the, uh, but, but I mean, it, the, what we got in the original series was more or less probably what we would have gotten even if they had accepted the cage as the pilot uh, with, a, with a few minor differences. But the overall series probably would have been more or less the same. And then the second season of Discovery happened. And by the time we got to the end of the second season of Discovery, I was completely on board with the notion of doing a Captain Pike series because Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and especially Rebecca Romijn were so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, Anson Mount did just an amazing job of making me invested in finding out more about Christopher Pike in a way Jeffrey Hunter never really did. And, and doing it, and, and what I love about his performance is he very obviously took his cues not only from Hunter's performance, but also Bruce Greenwood's uh, in the Bad Robot movies and, and still made it his own. And it's just, it was, it was just such an amazing job. And in particular, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with number one, partly because I love the way Rebecca Romijn played her. And mainly because we know what happens to Pike. Right. We know in excruciating detail what happens to Pike. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have no flipping clue what, what happens to number one. Number one is a complete blank slate once you get past the cage and the second season of Discovery. So she was always a fascinating character, both when Majel Barrett played her in the 60s and and and, and for that matter, the, the you know, a lot of the tie-in fiction has done some interesting stuff with her. DC Fontana's Vulcan's Glory, um, the Legacies trilogy that was done in 2016. Uh, John Byrne did a whole comic book miniseries that focused on her. Yeah, there's a lot there to play with. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Having said that, I've enjoyed everything they've done so far. Uh, it's it, there have been problems. Uh, it has not been none of them have been perfect. Um I'm I'm much more interested in discovery now that it's in the 32nd century than I was when it was in the 23rd. I think that was the right move. My my biggest issue with Star Trek in general pretty much between 2001 and 2020 is that it was looking backwards which was entirely the wrong thing to do. One of the reasons why The Next Generation succeeded is that it jumped, and for that matter, the movie succeeded. The movies and The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager all moved the story forward, sometimes with big leaps, but that worked. Um, 
one of the reasons why the movies worked is because they there was a it was obviously taking you know moving the characters forward both physically and technologically um and then enterprise moved backwards and then that that's all they did after that enterprise looked backwards the bad robot movies looked backwards discovery looked backwards um and finally in 2020 that changed with picard with lower decks and with discovery vaulting forward into the 32nd century which is absolutely the right thing to do and i am much more interested in that of these series that have aired so far i think my favorite is prodigy prodigy is wonderful and it's 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 different and yet very much star trek and it's a really good introduction to star trek for kids which was the which was the explicit purpose of the show um, yeah, yeah the original the original plan and this was this was this was a pre-apocalypse plan uh was to air it to premiere it on nickelodeon it was not supposed to be on paramount plus oh, later um that changed once the the once we once uh 2020 happened uh, and A, they were starved for content on Paramount Plus, and B, they actually have decided to make Paramount Plus like a home for stuff for kids. There's a whole crap load of kids programming on Paramount Plus that actually has been doing well for them. So, so that's that's been changed slightly. But um, but the uh, but the object always with Prodigy was to be something that can introduce kids to Star Trek. So Prodigy will always have a special place in my heart because the um, credits include three people who have been at Starbase, because uh, both of the science advisors, Dr. Moore and, and Dr. McDonald, and then also uh, Jenny Sellis is the yes. Klingon translator. Yes, so I, knew, I knew about, I, I knew two of them. I about that credit scene, like yes. I know those people, it's so and, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and my, my, my dear friend and colleague, David Mack, Star Trek novelist, has been, he has been, he was an unofficial consultant on the first season of Discovery, and that was made, he was an official consultant for the first seasons of both Lower Decks and Prodigy, basically, you know, helping them with the Trek stuff. In particular, it was his idea to uh, have Zero be a Medusan. Oh, nice. Um, and there were a couple of other, and he also, but like, he brought in a couple of minor things. Well, not minor. Uh, Rock is uh, Brickar, which was a, a species created by Peter David for the his young adult academy books and later used in New Frontier. That was Dave's suggestion also. And Dave is also the one I think this was like one of his best contributions to on-screen Trek when Lower Decks brought the Titan in. Mm -hmm. um, the original plan was just to create a new ship design. And Dave was the one who pointed out to them, we already have a ship design for the Titan. For the Simon and Schuster held a contest that uh, in the first Titan novel that they did in 2005 um, to, for someone to design the USS Titan. And then uh, a, year a year or two later, it debuted uh, on the cover of one of the books uh, and that has been the official design of Titan in the novels. And Dave was like, we've already got this design. We should use that. And they did, which is great. Um, it, it is so great seeing something from the tie-in fiction being used on screen like that. Um, yeah, you know, you, as you're talking, it's occurring to me, the universes that we play in now are have gotten so big. You know, you started yeah. in DC, right? Or in, in Marvel. Um, and that's a massive universe. And I always wonder how they keep track and, you know, with Trek and how do you, how can you possibly keep track of all of the details and do that well? Um, <laughs> it's and, not easy. And, and sometimes things, I mean, honestly, sometimes things go wrong, which is inevitable, but all things considered, given that we're talking about a property that has existed for 56 years now in the hands of many, many different people, it's been remarkably consistent. There are those who would disagree with me, particularly when it comes to the technology. 
but by the same token, you know, it's funny. I, I, I had this argument with people when, uh, when Enterprise debuted in 2001. People were complaining, well, the, the, the Enterprise doesn't look, it, should, it shouldn't look so much more advanced than, than Kirk's ship. And it's like, if you go into a Manhattan office building right now, it's more technologically advanced than Kirk's Enterprise. Right. If you take out the transporter and the warp drive, um, yeah, there's that piece of like, well, this isn't exactly canon. Okay, cool. You knew it was fictional, right? Yeah. We would not enjoy watching a series of the pacing and special effects quality that was possible in 1966. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the Enterprise is what we thought the future was going to look like mm-hmm. 56 years ago. Um, Discovery is what we think the future is going to look like in 2022, you know. And, and pieces, they're probably both wrong. So some pieces were remarkably prescient, you know, like yeah. the the doors to the supermarket didn't do that thing when right. Star Trek first aired, right? Right. But also when they talk on a communicator, they stop. Well, we don't stop when we talk on our cell phones now, do we? Um, <laughs> so some of it you get right, some of it you get wrong, and either yeah. way, it's interesting. I mean, one of the one of the great failures of all science fiction was the inability to anticipate the notion of the computer monitor. Say more about that. Look at any computer in in any science fiction thing. The idea of there being a basically a TV set attached to your computer until that started happening in the mid 70s. You didn't see that in any science fiction. Nobody anticipated that. Yeah. Everything was, you know, some kind of of printout or tape or or something to to provide the data. Or tablet. Um, That was, you know, that's that that's how it worked on on on. And mostly nobody saw that coming. And so that, and for that, you know, and you look at things like like Alien, where everything's on a monochrome monitor, where the data scrolls like it's you know 1986. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's you don't know what you're going to get right and what you're not going to get right. Next Generation had the pads, which looked incredibly futuristic in 1987, and they're like primitive iPads now. You know? Yeah. Um, it it that's always going to happen. With, with any science fiction, any any attempt to predict the future. And that, that, that's not what the stories are about anyway. That's just, you know, dressing. So you have been to Starbase Indy. You were yes. last came to visit us in 2019. So what did you enjoy about Starbase Indy? Oh, uh, Starbase Indy is the type of media show that I particularly like. Um, Shoreleave and Farpoint in Maryland are like this too. Mm-hmm. Icon used to be like this back before it imploded, where it's a little more intimate and, and more casual. A lot of the bigger media shows, it's all, you know, you go into the audience, the people come on stage and there's and and there's a really long autograph line and, and the actual interaction with the guests is less personal. And it's necessary, especially with large crowds, you know, that's necessary. You can't, sure. you know, if you've got a very large number of people and that and, you know, being able to accommodate a large group of people is a good thing. And, and that's, you know, you don't want to deny people the ability to, to come to a thing but it's nice to have the alternative of a smaller show where you know you can you can pause to have a friendly chat with somebody not just you know here's your autograph go you know right, right. um so that and and i really enjoyed that and you know the people there are great there was a good variety of programming it was just a you know it was it was it's it's what i look for in a show <laughs> that's what we like to hear so, you know it's just there's lots of there's lots of different things to do if if you're just there to stargaze you can do that if you're there for the entertainment there's that there's good panel discussions there's good q a's there's lots of fun dealers there's there's just you know a little bit of everything 
so you are one of those multi-talented creative people. So you write, but you other do you also do a bunch of other stuff. So tell us about some of your other creative endeavors. Um, well, I mean, writing is the most most is what I do mostly creative-wise. And I and I also edit. I mean, I mentioned I was an editor for Byron Price. I still do that. Um and um and it's not just science fiction and fantasy. I also uh edit. I've I've actually been uh regularly helping out uh with editing on uh, on some baseball articles for the Society of American Baseball Research. And I occasionally write for them as well. Uh, I also am a martial artist. Um, I don't know if that counts as a creative endeavor, but um, yeah. uh, in, in 2004, uh, I turned 35 and the warranty ran out. Um, <laughs> every, everything started breaking down. Uh, I was overweight. I had a hiatal hernia. My knees and feet hurt all the time. I had the stamina of an asthmatic ant. And um, my doctor said, hey, maybe you should try exercising, you know, once. Because <laughs> um, up to that point in my life, the only thing I exercised was my futility. And I exercised it often. So I, there was a karate dojo, 10-minute uh, walk from, from where I was living at the time. Uh, I went in there and got my ass kicked for an hour. <laughs> and um, and it is now... It is now I can't do math. 18, almost, uh, 17 and a half years later, uh, I am a fourth degree black belt. Uh, I got my fourth degree this past November. Congratulations. Uh, which was a very grueling five-day promotion that included um, running through, you know, all the material I'm supposed to know, all the katas, all the basic stuff, plus a 20-mile hike on the Appalachian Trail, which included four different mountains, uh, an all-night uh, all session at the dojo, which basically covering my entire karate life uh, over the course of 12 hours. And uh, and then about thirty rounds of uh, thirty one minute rounds of uh, sparring, that was the last part. And then I took a very long nap. <laughs> yeah, that seems like the right but, plan uh, after that. Yeah, but uh, I I still not only do I keep training, but I also teach. I uh, I teach private lessons to people at our dojo, and then once a week I teach an after school program. One of the local uh, schools here in New York has an after school program, which basically it's it's a it's a thing that that gives kids something to do between the hours of three and six. For parents who, uh, you know, either, you know, single parents or double income parents where, where there is nobody to take care of the kid in the afternoon until they're done with work, they can leave them at the school. The company's called Little Red Rocket and they, they, the kids hang out there. They have various activities. And one of the things they do once a week is they learn karate for me. So, uh, so I do that every uh, once a week. So and that's you, you also, are you, you're a musician. Is that right? Oh, right. Yeah. That part. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, because because of the recent apocalypse, I haven't actually played music in like three years. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, but a little over two years. Uh, the, la the last concert we did was at Farpoint in 2020. And I haven't actually like taken, I, I'm a percussionist. In the 90s, I was with a band called the Don't Quit Your Day Job Players, put out two CDs. <laughs> that, the name was a joke that suck. It was, uh, we started out just jamming at conventions and it sort of became a thing. Uh, we played, we were musical guests at a lot of conventions throughout the nineties. And we also did a lot of clubs in New York. We did state and county fairs in the, in the area. And then we broke up in 2000. In 2006, I joined the Boogie Nights, which is a parody band. They're, they're mostly based in the, the Baltimore DC area in Maryland. They're, they're, it's an acoustic group. It, the, the only instrumentation really is an acoustic guitar, me on percussion and the occasional kazoo. And they do fantasy, horror, and historical parodies of popular songs. Got, we put out, uh, I want to say seven albums. Uh, I'm on two of them. 
and uh, and I also wrote a song for a third one. What song did you write? I wrote a song called uh, Young Master Frodo, which is done to the tune of uh, General Taylor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it basically telling the Lord of the Rings story to the tune of uh, General Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote another one that we haven't recorded yet, which is uh, called I'm Gonna Wreck the Shrine, which is uh, to the tune of uh, this little light of mine. So, <laughs> so, and it's basically, the story is basically a Kung Fu movie. So Nice. So um, you're a podcaster too, right? Or have been? Not lately. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, for a while, I did a podcast called Dead Kitchen Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, the title, the, the title, Dead Kitchen Radio is an anagram of Keith Already Candida. Uh, the problem was it was just, it was taking up too much of my time for not enough reward, really. Mm-hmm. I was talking about various works and things, but I just, I didn't have the time to keep it up. We're a pretty new podcast. So do you have any advice for a new podcaster having done it? Not really, because I didn't do it very <laughs> you don't well. Do it anymore, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't do it anymore. Yeah, uh, I have been involved in other podcasts. Uh, I was I was part of the Chronic Rift, mm-hmm. uh, which is still a group of podcasts, but the Chronic Rift itself is kind of uh, lay fallow. The, the The problem is, I have too many other things on my plate. Most of them are things that actually provide me with income. <laughs> Always <laughs> so, important when you're a freelancer. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was really hard to justify the time it was taking to do the podcasts when I had so many other things to do. Uh, although having said that, I did during the pandemic, I started a YouTube channel oh, and that was partly for my own mental health and, and for other people's. I was called Crad COVID Readings uh, where I read I read my short fiction and that actually ran throughout from hmm, sometime in March. I started in late March of uh, 2020 and it ran all the way through to the end of 2021. And I read every single work of short fiction that I had written. Uh, either short stories and uh, novelettes and novellas. Nice. And uh, through what I did throughout 2021 was read my Starfleet Corps of Engineers novellas that I had written. Oh, and cool. I, broke, I broke those up into parts and did that every week. That was fun. I mean, that, and that was something I spe- that was something that was specifically inspired by the recent apocalypse. And 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 I got a lot of subscribers to it. And and people, and I enjoy doing readings. I'm thinking about reviving it just because I've written more short stories since then, and it was fun. But, yeah, those are good reasons. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I also, for Tor.com, besides reviewing the new Star Trek stuff, I'm also doing uh, rewatches of old Star Trek. Uh, In 2020, I started a Star Trek Voyager rewatch. I've already done the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. Uh, I originally wasn't going to do Voyager and Enterprise. I I was never that fond of them and actually kind of stopped watching them when they originally aired. And it's like, why do I want to spend two years of my life writing about something I don't like? Uh, I changed my mind on it for several reasons. that, that That was my thought process up through 2017, which is when I, I finished uh, the original series. And then in late 2019, as I was winding down, I also did and and, have, and continued to revive periodically uh, a superhero movie rewatch. Uh, from 2017 to 2020, I, I covered every single live action movie based on a superhero comic. Uh, oh, wow. Which was quite a lot of them. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, I started starting all the way back with Superman and the Mole Men from the 50s and the 1966 Batman, all the way through to the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. Mm-hmm. Once I got to the Joker, I had caught up to real time, as it were. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I have been doing is reviving the feature every six months or so and, mm-hmm. and doing weekly looks at that. So that's still going. But when I was winding down that the, the initial iteration of, of the superhero movie, I was thinking, all right, what do I want to do next? And the more I thought about it, 2020 was the 25th anniversary of Voyager's launch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there was that. And there was also the fact that several people whose opinion I respect, many of whom are were women who are younger than me, 
were upset that I was so disdainful of Voyager because they grew up with Voyager. Janeway was one of their role models and they thought I should give it another chance. Also, I'm older and I don't know if I'm mellower, but possibly wiser. At the time Voyager was coming out, it was coming out simultaneously with Deep Space Nine when Deep Space Nine was doing some of their absolute best material. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, part of the problem was I. it was really easy to compare the two because they were debuting at the same time. And Voyager, to my mind, kept coming up short. I wanted to reevaluate it on its own merits. And also knowing 25 years later, I know what Voyager is. Right. Voyager is basically a stand, mostly standalone show about people being lost in space that obviously did not want to deal with consequences. The stories all had to be contained within that the 42 minutes in which they told the story or, you know, 84 if it was a two-parter. So knowing that going in, I could evaluate Voyager more more on its own merits and not on how it compared to other things and knowing that it, you know, it wasn't going to be something I was expecting it to be. I still had some problems with it. I really think the show missed a beat by not embracing its premise properly. Of all the shows that should have embraced consequences, Voyager is the one that should have the most simply because they don't have any backup. They don't, you know, um, and if any show, one, one of the things I really like about the current crop of, of shows on Paramount Plus is that they're, for the most part, avoiding the redshirt phenomenon, which has been one of, well, it's honestly one of dramatic fiction's most despicable tendencies, but Star Trek is, is yeah, Star Trek is, is so famous for it that it's named after something from Star Trek. If somebody dies, it should mean something. Even if that person doesn't mean anything to the viewer necessarily, that person means something to some other character. Everybody is somebody's child, somebody's parent, somebody's brother, sister, whatever, uh, best friend, something. Like I loved when Discovery, when Arium died, we didn't know that much about Arium, but Arium was still an important part of the crew. So even if she wasn't important to us, she was important to the rest of the crew and they showed that. Mm-hmm. Voyager in particular should never have had any red shirts. Every single death had to mean something because they had a limited number of people. Right. If somebody dies, there's no replacement coming and somebody has to do their job now. Yeah. It should have been a major deal and it wasn't. Over 30 people died and nobody gave a damn. We only saw a couple of memorial services or even acknowledgement of it. A lot of them didn't get names. Of all the shows where it shouldn't have been a casual thing, that was the one where it shouldn't have been. Having said that, because of the apocalypse, the Voyager rewatch turned out to be a great bomb because that was something that that was something that kept me focused. I had to do that twice a week, no matter what. When things were particularly bad, I at least had that. I was like, all right, I have to do the Voyager rewatch because that was every Monday and Thursday, like clockwork. And and for a lot of people, it was it was the same thing. It was just you know, having that regular thing was a good thing during lockdown. And I really, I, there, were, there was a lot to like about the show. You know, there was a, some phenomenal acting, which, which was always the case. And some individual stories were fantastic. And some that were, you know, even if they were like, there were more high concepts than they were sensible stories. There were really good high concepts and were a lot of fun. When it was good, it was really good. Stories like Living Witness or Bright of Chaotica. I especially love Bright of Chaotica because I'm a fan of old movie serials. So that one, that was always a, a, a fun one for me. You know, pretty much any time they focused on the EMH, it was usually pretty good because Robert Picardo was magnificent. Um, uh, for that matter, uh, one, I think one of their best episodes was, of all things, a Neelix episode uh, from the first season, Jatrell, where we got Neelix's mm-hmm. backstory and, and met the guy, basically the, the equivalent of uh, uh, the Manhattan Project for uh, Talaxians. One of my great frustrations with the show was the character of Neelix because when he was allowed to actually be a character rather than a caricature, Ethan Phillips did a great job. And they so rarely did that. Mostly he was the obnoxious, unfunny comic relief. And on those occasions where they actually let him be an interesting character, it was really good. And now I'm doing Enterprise. I finished Voyager late last year. Enterprise, because it was only on for four years, I'm cutting that back to once a week, especially because Paramount Plus is pretty much dedicated to a new Star Trek every week now. So, um, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so, uh, 
Uh, so I'm I'm doing I'm doing Enterprise on Mondays and this week's new Star Trek on Thursdays. Sometimes that's two new episodes because there's been some overlap. Great. Uh, I, I love that they're dedicated to doing a whole bunch of new things. And I've had some issues with Discovery, but it's gotten a lot better since it moved forward. Picard's first season was very uneven, and I'm not entirely, I don't know what the hell they're doing this season. Although with Picard, what I'm particularly enjoying is something you don't see in fiction very often, which is heroes at the latter portion of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's done, it's usually worth examining. Like um, Unforgiven did that very well. Uh, another Patrick Stewart vehicle, Logan, did that very well. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Stories like that, that that look at heroes when they're past their prime. That is of tremendous interest to me, particularly as I get older. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, those are the stories I want to. And I so, to, yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, Stranger Worlds. Lower Decks has gotten a lot better. Lower Decks, I think, is at its best when it a Star Trek comedy as opposed to a comedy that happens to take place in the Star Trek universe. Makes sense. When it actually embraces its Star Trekness more and doesn't try to be a workplace comedy set in the 24th century, it works much better. And I thought the second season was a huge improvement on the first. Um, and like, and Prodigy is just is wonderful. So Sounds like you've got lots going on. Yeah. So where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, uh, they can go to my really terrible website at decandido.net, mm-hmm. uh, which is really terrible. Uh, I've been talking with somebody about refurbishing it and we haven't been able to get it going. It was, we were all ready to, to, to get it going and then the apocalypse happened and everything just, mm-hmm. but eventually I hope to upgrade it. But either way, even as it stands right now, as terrible as it is, because it pretty much looks like a GeoCities website from 1997, but it's a link dump. It, it takes you to all the places that I actually update regularly. I have a blog that I update regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Crad's Inaccurate Guide to Life. And um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, pretty regularly. Uh, and there are links to that there. There's my YouTube channel. I have a Patreon also, uh, mm-hmm. which is patreon.com slash cred, my initials. Um, R-A-D. Yes. Yes. Uh, and my Patreon, I do uh, movie reviews, TV reviews, excerpts from my works in progress, uh, vignettes featuring my original characters from the Precinct universes, the Urban Fantasies, and, and the Super City Cops series. First looks at my first drafts, um, so when I finish a chapter or I finish a short story, you get to see the the first draft of it, and and cat pictures. Oh, always cat pictures. Yes. yes. So each of those has a different tier. Like one dollar a month, all you get is a monthly movie review. Two dollars a month, you get that plus the cat pictures. Oh, so for yeah. only two dollars a month, absolutely, <laughs> you can you can get and we have two we have incredibly photogenic cats yes, and there are yes, occasional other guest cats and the occasional dog too when we when we visit other people and then the. TV reviews, the excerpts, and so on. The, the most expensive tier is, is $20 a month, and that gets you all of it. But for just, you know, one, two, five, seven, ten, or $20 a month, um, any of which is fairly cheap, I would think, yeah, you yeah. can get all this cool stuff. So Great. Well, thanks for talking to me. My and pleasure. I look forward to watching what you're doing going forward. And I, and I hope to be back at Starbase Indy. Yes. We hope yes. to have you back. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.